Today, it's a detailed look at the Canon autofocus system settings. And if you're not a Canon shooter, do not run away. We're going to be using my EOS R5 as the example today. But here's the deal. Whatever brand you use, Nikon, Sony, Panasonic, etc., the AF options that you're going to see are going to change between brands. In fact, often they'll even change within a brand between actual models within that brand. But most of today's cameras are going to have some kind of equivalent to the settings that we're going to be talking about. Some of them may be more or less granular than the ones that we talk about. But if you understand these AF concepts, it's still going to help you get the most out of your camera's AF system. This is Behind the Shot. Hi, welcome to Behind the Shot. I'm Steve Brazel. This is the show where normally we get inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. Today's a little bit different. This is an episode I've been working on for a long time. I am so excited for this because it's one of those, those topics that is near and dear to my heart. And you'll understand why as I get a little bit more into the show. Just want to remind you that the show notes for today, they are available at behindtheshot.tv. Or if you're watching on YouTube, they're also down in the comments and notes section on YouTube. And I've got a lot I want to get through today. So I'm going to jump right into today's guest. Today's guest is a technical advisor for the product planning department at Canon USA, Mr. Rudy Winston. How are you, sir? Oh, it's a pleasure. To, I'm doing fine. A pleasure to be with you today. I'm, I'm glad to have you here. You and I have been going back and forth on this since probably early December, getting this arranged, getting schedules working, getting, you know, people signing off on us, on us doing this show. And I'm so glad that you're here. I actually, I want to tell this story of how I originally found you and something that you did that still to this day, I don't know if I've ever told you this, still to this day, I consider above and beyond what almost anybody has ever done when I've asked somebody a technical question. So we have a mutual friend, Robert Fletcher. Robert works, he's not a Canon employee, but he's one of the guys that's behind the booth at trade shows. When you walk up to the Canon booth and you're looking at this glass case of every Canon lens and every Canon body, and you've got technical questions. And I always thought Robert knew everything about Canon. And one day I changed from my old 7D, original 7D, and I bought a 5D Mark III, and then I bought a 5D Mark IV. And when I got the 5D Mark IV, I was having issues with it, uh, AF issues, where a singer that was jumping around the stage, I'd pull focus with no problem. That singer would stand at a microphone not moving, and I'd miss focus. And I'd pull those shots up in DPP, uh, a digital photo professional, the Canon software. And the reason I like that software, and I, I almost never use it except for this feature, it shows me the AF point location and a color on whether it locked that AF point or not. And that's valuable for troubleshooting. And it would show the AF point on their eye. So I reached out to Robert and said, Robert, I don't understand. My, my 5D Mark III is doing better at AF. The 5D Mark IV pictures blow it away. There's like a depth and a richness to it that was like nothing I'd seen. And he goes, you know, I don't know. Let me put you in touch with my buddy, Rudy. He's the one guy at Canon that knows everything. So to, to wrap this up as quick as I possibly can, I'm thinking, okay, I send the description I just gave to Rudy with one of the pictures. And I'm thinking, this guy works for Canon. He's busy. He's going to send me back a sentence or two, change this, or not sure I'd have to have the camera in my hands or something. Rudy 
sent me back. I don't even know if you remember this because this, this was three, four years ago, probably. Rudy sent me back an email. I kid you not, was two pages long of a detailed description of what all the different autofocus cases that the 5D Mark IV had, why I had mentioned I was thinking of using case four, should I be using case? No, 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 don't use that one. You know, use four, five is for this. We went, I don't want to get into that now because we're going to get into it during the show, but what the cases are. But explain to me why I would want case A over case B. Uh, and then I said, you know, I'm using AF point expansion. My understanding is that it does this. He goes, nope, <laughs> it does. This is what it does. And at that moment, I knew to myself, this is a show. And I am so glad that you're here now. And to set up you, you've been with Canon a long time, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like 25 years. 25 years with Canon. Here's what I want to understand. You're a technical advisor. Explain what that is. I think of you as almost an engineer there. <laughs> well, I, I want to make clear right at the right from the get go. I am not an engineer uh, by training or vocation. Uh, engineering on our products is done by people a lot smarter than me over in Japan. Uh, but what I do, I, I have a role where I wear many hats. Uh, but a large a part of what I do is interacting with our customers, just as I did with you. And it's a part of my job I actually very much enjoy. Uh, you know, helping customers get clarity on, you know, what's an increasingly complex set of operations. And that is just simply working modern digital cameras, you know, first SLRs and now, of course, uh, into mirrorless, especially when we get into the high end mirrorless products. Uh, so that's part of what I do. Uh, I act uh, within the walls of Canon. Uh, I create a lot of marketing marketing materials, especially when they have to be sort of technical in nature. Uh, myself and a team of people help bring new products into the marketplace. Uh, that is to say, we help, you know, make sure that uh, the Canon marketing team kind of knows what a new product is going to do and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a fun job with a lot of, like I said, we wear a lot of different hats. I've only scratched the surface of the variety of things that cross my desk in the course of a week or whatever, but it's a lot of fun. And this is one of the things I like the best is being able to kind of get out of the office in air quotes and interact with our customer base and people like yourself, Steve. Well, it's interesting the way you just described that, because as you're saying that, I'm thinking to myself, he's the glue. You're you're the connective tissue in a way between, you know, we. I'm an IT, you know, from a history point of view. And in tech, we always joke about the fact that the last person that should be writing a manual is an engineer, but the manual is the only, the, the engineer is the only one who knows how to write the manual. And that's why we all joke that manuals are so technical, people can't understand them. But you're kind of the glue, the, that, that, that connective tissue between those super technical people that maybe engineer the products and create the products and the consumer, because when you sent me those emails, and I, I'm technical, I've got a, a strong technical background, and yet still... I was amazed at how down to earth, how real you you were able to communicate technical uh, technical concepts. I did not know you're a photographer too. Your love of photography started when you were young. I think you were six years old, according to your bio, and it was a six week trip to uh, to to Europe. What what do you photograph? I like to photograph lots of things. I I, I want to make clear I'm not a professional. 
there was a time before I came to Canon where I was shooting professionally. Uh, but you know, now I, you know, most of the shooting I do is either to test and evaluate gear or to just simply, you know, for myself, I love to travel. I love to just walk around in cities and simply see things, especially with a different lens. And what I mean is something either real wide or real long. Uh, it doesn't mean everything has to be shot with like the new 800 millimeter lens we just announced. That's I was, not what I was I mean. literally just going to follow up and go, please tell me you've <laughs> held the eight or the 1200 millimeter. <laughs> I've held them. <laughs> I haven't taken them out and actually, you know, tried to take real photographs with them, you know, in the middle of New York city or whatever. But I, I, I enjoy doing that. I have a background in shooting sports. And while I don't do a lot of that these days, it's still something I very, very much enjoy. Even just you know, bringing a camera to a, with a with a telephoto lens to a high school game uh, is something I find a lot of fun. And in the last few years, I've gotten into photographing models, male and female, and uh, that's it changed gears for me a bit because until then, a lot of the shooting I had done had been basically, at its heart, candid type shooting, where I was reacting to what was happening in front of me. Obviously, sports is by nature that way, uh, but even in a lot of the travel and city type stuff I do and so on. That's kind of the way I worked. Uh, working with models, it's more you're creating the picture, even if you're not getting into very precise posing and that kind of thing. So it's opened up some new doors for me, and I very much enjoyed that too. So in your bio, it mentioned something I want to touch on really quick. I just hit my mic. If if those of you listening on audio, if you heard that, that was Steve. Uh, your bio listed three of your favorite lenses. And Two of them I have not shot with. One of them is my favorite, one of my favorite lenses. Actually, I've shot with a version of it. So the RF 100 to 500, I know so many people who love that lens. Uh, David Bergman likes the lens. Rick Salmon likes the lens. Uh, the EF 100 to 400 IS, which is kind of the EF equivalent of the RF 100 to 500. And then the 14 to 35. Now, in your case, it's an F4. In my case, it's the 15 to 35 F2.8. But man, the wide EF glass is just amazing. If, if if you could, if there was a lens that you don't own that you really wanted and is not one of these three, what would be your all around lens? Like for somebody just to use all the time, like I, I've always liked the 24 to 105, what would be your favorite single? You're on a desert island. You can't have any other lens. What would it be? Whoa, that's a good question. Uh, one of each. Yuck, yuck. Yeah. Um, seriously. You know, I might still go with something ultra wide. Uh, obviously, a 24 to 105 or something similar covers a lot more general bases. I know most people would probably feel more comfortable with that. Uh, I love a 24 millimeter for what it does visually on a full frame camera, but uh, over the years, this is nothing new with the uh, R system lenses. Uh, I've really uh, gotten acclimated to what you can do with ultra wide. And I mean, if you drop me in the middle of Paris for a week and said, you know, you can only have one lens, one lens, you know, knock them dead out here. That something ultra wide, the 15 to 35 uh, to a the 14 I mentioned. I know you said something other than what I mentioned. Uh, maybe even. Oh, this is going out on a limb. Uh oh. Maybe even the 16 millimeter f2.8. It's a $299 lens. A lot of people just kind of look right by it. Uh, but it's that's, that's the that's the almost pancake version, right? 
right. It's a very lightweight, compact lens, uh, and it's not a fisheye. It's a rectilinear lens, and uh, it's actually quite sharp. And I'm not saying it's an L lens, but I mean it's its performance is pretty good. And I mean it just anything you take looks different than it does to the naked eye. And that's something I've always liked in photography when you can do that. It's, it's part of the reason to getting there. A part of the reason I love that 15 to 35. Now in the EF side, one of my favorite lenses was the 16 to 35 Mark three. That lens was amazing. Tack sharp, not edge to edge. Cause none of the EF glass really was edge to edge with the RF. You go a little bit wider 15. It's pretty much rectilinear, which is really, really neat at that wide. And you get to 35. It's I use it at shows all the time when a singer or a guitarist, you know, comes sticks themselves right in front of my my lens. In the 25 years you've been doing this, AF systems have changed dras- drastically, really a lot. I mean, in 25 years, we've actually gone to AF as opposed to just manual. Is there any commonly misunderstood aspect of today's AF? In, in your experience that, that an average consumer hits like, like a major one major misunderstanding misconception. That's a real good question. That's a real good question. And you know, the, I guess the, the short answer is yeah, there are lots of them, but I think nowadays, right now in 2022, right. Uh, we, as photographers, we have an embarrassment of riches, regardless of what camera system we use. I'm speaking about Canon, but the same as you said earlier would apply to other competitive systems as well. The degree of focus control and focus settings that we have, I guess that's part of the reason I'm here today, you uh, it, has, yeah. gotten, <laughs> has gotten so extensive that I think if there's one thing, it's that a lot of photographers tend to overthink it and try it's understanding what's on the menu what all your options are is a great thing i'm not down on that at all but sometimes we tend to just start reaching for stuff and the you know it it, it isn't i shouldn't say it isn't help that's not the right way to put it but it's exacerbated maybe by the fact that there is so much online information that anybody can go online and say, oh, I shoot birds and I did this. And, you know, maybe it was exactly the way the engineers intended for it to be used in that application. Maybe they're totally off base, but it just happened to work. It can get so darn confusing. And so, you know, I, I used to do more seminars in the field. That's something I missed since the pandemic. But uh, one of the things I always try to tell people is understand your options, but start at the beginning. Don't try to do everything at once in terms of layering on all kinds of features and customization and stuff. Take it a step at a time. You know, you got to crawl before you can run. Yeah. And and I will say, you know, when I first met you and I had the issue and, and I started customizing settings, I was able to customize some things. But being able to start from a base point, it's one of the reason I, reasons I like the fact that the Canon systems have those cases, which are, for those of you that don't shoot Canon, if you're a Nikon or a Sony shooter, let me, I should probably explain cases, and I will more as we get into them. But cases are basically, think of them if you ever go into Lightroom and use a preset. That's really what it is. It's three main settings for each particular case that are preset up to different settings to react differently to different scenarios. And 
And I think those are going to come in pretty heavy, those customizations, when we get to, to viewer questions. I put out on Twitter and Instagram, look, I'm doing this show with Rudy. And if you've got any questions on the Canon AF system, send them out to me. And wow, just they, they flooded in. So I chose a, a couple of them and I'll have those at the end because my feeling is we'll probably answer some of them during the normal course of this. But uh, I do have those at the end and, and we'll do that. I do want to remind everybody really quick here that the normal shows, this this show and the ones where I normally have a photographer on talking about a shot and the, you know why they made the choices that they did. Uh, Behind the Shot is available wherever you get your podcasts. It's available in audio format only or video format. I primarily approach the show as a video show because we are usually talking about a photograph. It helps if you can see it, but about 50% of the audience listens audio only. As well, if you don't listen to podcasts in a podcast app, and and I want to stress, in podcast apps, if your app supports video like Apple Podcasts, you can get a video version or the audio only version. If you don't have an app that supports video, you can head on over to YouTube. The the podcast is up there as well. And I do also want to just take a minute to thank my friends over at DVE Store for the HD video. You can visit dvestore.com for your digital video equipment needs. And I probably should also mention I've got a workshop coming up. At the time we're recording, this is is end of February. And I do workshops for princetonphotoworkshop.com. And if you want to uh, check out the workshops I've got going on there, I've got an action photography workshop. It kind of uses my music and sports photography as examples, but we talk about all kinds of things, pretty much anything that you might want action, head over to princetonphotoworkshop.com and uh, you can find all the details there. Which brings us into uh, the conversation that we're going to have today. Here, My plan, Rudy, and tell me if there's a better way to do this. I'm going to go through the actual camera settings. Like I say, I've got my my R5 here ready to go. And uh, I just want to go through page by page on these settings and have you describe to us what they are, what they mean. And if I've got any questions on them, we'll kind of pull that up uh, for us as well. So first of all, this is AF menu setting number one. And just so people know, this is the R5 It's set up from a show, 1600 ISO 2.8. I've got a 24 to 70 on here and one 500th of a second. And you can see kind of the settings I've got set up right now, right? So I'm in AI servo mode. I'm in a standard AF, what's called point expansion. You can see on the bottom left-hand corner. Um, I shoot raw to both cards, that type of thing. Primary card being card number one, because that's the CF Express card. So that's kind of my setup. So let's run down through these and... uh, see what the differences are. So first of all, AF page number one. And and folks, by the way, if you have, I should mention this, if you've got an R5, if you've got an R6, is the the R, the original R, that is pretty similar too, right? Yeah, but there are a number of enhancements on the R5 and the R6 in a number of areas that we'll get into, no doubt. What about the uh, R3? So is the it going to be are- most, mostly the same for an R3? Uh, yeah, the R3 brings some additional new features in that we can touch upon. Uh, I realize the R3 is, you know, aimed at a, a different sort of clientele. Right. Uh, and uh, on top of that, they've been rather scarce up to now uh, with the supply issues that the whole world is going through. So, uh, you know, I, th- I think it's fair to concentrate on the R5 and the R6, but there are some things about the R3 that I want to mention as we kind of get into it, just so that people understand some differences and why, you know, for some photographers, it may be something to consider in terms of stepping up to an R3, regardless of right. what you're working with now. I know Bergman, Bergman let me hold his when I, when I met up with him in Vegas. 
Uh, oh, it felt so good. But he, I know he likes it. So, so let's jump into these. First of all, we've got, and I'm doing the camera as I'm looking at the screen and as I'm looking at Rudy. So if I hit a wrong button, it's that. Uh, first of all, let's talk about AF operation. So for AF, AF operation for me, uh, you have the options of one shot and servo. I keep it in servo. Do, explain the two differences. Yes. This has been something with Canon ever since we introduced EOS back in the late 1980s. One shot doesn't have anything to do with how many pictures you can take in a row. What that ha That's your drive speed. One shot means that as far as focusing is concerned, we're auto-focusing on a stationary subject and then locking the focus once the camera detects that, okay, this subject is sharp. If you keep your finger halfway down on the shutter button, or if you're working with one of the back buttons for AF operation, if you keep your thumb on that button, the focus will stay locked. You can recompose and whatever else. So that's one shot autofocus. Servo is intended to continually follow focus on moving subjects, any moving subject. That could be anything from a speaker at a podium who just tends to kind of rock back and forth as he or she delivers whatever their content is to an indie race car. Uh, one little notational thing here, for years and years with the digital SLRs, we called it AI Servo. So you'll see AI Servo on your 5Ds or your Rebels or whatever. Uh, it's not AL or A1, it's AI. Uh, it stood for artificial intelligence. With the mirrorless cameras, on the M series and the EOS R series, it is just servo. We don't call it AI servo anymore. Okay. No, the thought police aren't going to come and uh, write you a ticket if you say AI servo by accident. Uh, but just understand that that's what it is. means uh, the same thing. Okay. So next we have AF method. And right now I have a one that I just used two nights ago at a show. Uh, I'm going to start this at the beginning is probably the best bet. And let me actually go back here really quick. Sorry about that. Hit the wrong one. And okay, first one is face detect plus tracking. AF method is kind of a poorly named way of saying what size is the AF area going to be that the camera uses to read out and focus upon whatever you're pointing the camera at. Face Detect Plus tracking means a couple of things. It means, number one, you are using the maximum area of the entire picture area that the camera is able to do. That will vary depending upon the lens you have. Some of the big super telephoto lenses, uh, like the 800mm f11 and the 600mm uh, f11, uh, you're more limited to a central area for technical reasons. But regardless, Face Detect Plus tracking means that you're using a broad area with which the camera can focus. And then the, the face detect part means that the system is able to detect faces. And with the R5 and the R6, you can do other types of subject detection as well, animals and vehicles. It's got to be in the face detect plus tracking setting to get that and also to get eye detection. Eye detection only kicks in in face detect plus tracking on the R5 and the R6. Then you have moving Before to the you right, do, I just want to I want to emphasize something option. that you just said, sure. and that is if you want, you know, vehicle or animal type detection, that is face plus tracking. Don't let the name, you know, throw you there. Uh okay. Very good point. So then the next one point. is spot AF. 
You're using a single focusing point, but now it is deliberately sampling from an even smaller area. You'll see that you'll, you can see yourself in the viewfinder or on the LCD screen. The single focusing point is smaller than when you go to the next one, which is single point AF. This is very good for very precisely focusing on a very small part of a subject, like if you're taking a macro shot of, uh, you know, a flower, a small animal, something like that. Keep in mind, it's not because you are sampling a small area. It's not seeing a lot of your subject. It can be a problem with servo autofocus and moving subjects. I would not necessarily recommend spot AF most of the time for sports pictures. One thing, l l let me, let me ask you a question AF. while you're in there. I apologize for sure. interrupting, but, but one sure. thing I noticed no, no. was compared to the 5D Mark IV, which is my webcam here, the 5D Mark IV had you know spot and then standard single point. One thing I noticed immediately when I went to the R5 and the R6 is those are different sizes. So yeah, they are. when you when you are visually looking at your focus point through the EVF or on the back of your camera or whatever, normal single point, which is this one here, one point AF, is a fairly large square now. Is it is that just the right. display or is it actually sampling a larger area? No, it's sampling an area that's pretty darn close to what you see on the screen or in the else in the viewfinder. So it is sampling a larger area. Uh, and part of that is the nature of reading off the imaging sensor as opposed to using a dedicated focusing sensor, which is what the digital SLRs did. Okay. Uh, anything else on, on uh, one point AF or spot AF? No, those are the two main things. Anytime you want to focus precisely when I say precisely, I'm not talking more accurately. I'm just saying where you want to limit your focusing detection and your determination of sharpness to a small area of a subject. Either of these is the way to go. Okay. So the next two are the ones that I use. You've got expand AF, which is five points. And then you have expand AF, which is nine points. And this was one of the ones that on our original email that I, I touched on. And I'm like, I'm using the nine point AF. And you were very clear to point out to me, no, 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 it is not nine point AF. It's still single point AF, but the other eight, or at least this is the way I understood it at the time, and I'm probably still wrong. It's still the single point that's in the middle. The, it, it's, not, it's not using all nine for AF detection. It's using the chosen point for AF detection. And the other ones are, are uh, you know, like, I'm here to help if you need me. Is that a good way to word it? You said it perfectly. You you nailed it. Uh, this is in the Canon system. It's been this way with the SLRs and now with mirrorless. So the the concept is the same. Uh, you're still working with a central principal point. Whatever the point in the center is, is the one the system wants to use. The surrounding points are there to help if that central point simply isn't seeing enough detail or contrast or for any other reason. The central point just isn't getting enough information. It'll immediately ask the surrounding points, hey, do you see detail? Do you see detail? And use them as needed. Uh, but you are correct. It is not like you're focusing with nine focusing points if you go to the highlighted setting you have on the screen right now. Okay, so then but that brings in a question. A, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, you, you, that's fine. So then the you question would be, in my head... I look at these and I don't know when I would ever only want left and right of my focus point helping me and above and below my focus point helping me. Why would I, why even have that in there? Why wouldn't you always want the corners? 
You know, it's, that's a good question. It's never really been articulated. I think it was just a matter of giving photographers a, a choice of, okay, if the system is going to sometimes move away from your primary point, do you want to kind of limit how much movement it has? I don't mean how far it can move, but just the direction it can move in. Uh, or alternatively, uh, do you want to have that total flexibility? I get it, uh, Steve, why you, why you always use uh, or almost always use the, the surrounding system, the eight points surrounding the central point. Uh, but it's always been there. Uh, I've used them both. I haven't really detected a difference in terms of their operation and so on. The, the system rarely has to go outside that primary point to begin with. But when it does, the way you do it just simply gives you some more options. Okay. I, I just thought of something. I, I, this episode is going to go longer than I thought because I've got questions. I just thought of something. So it's using the center focus point. The other ones are there to help it if it can't find enough contrast or detail or whatever. So let's take a hypothetical. Imagine somebody's head's in a weird position and I've got my focus point on their eye, but their eye isn't lit well enough to give me contrast or detail. And one of those assist points is on their ear. And I'm shooting at yeah. 1.8 or 2.8. Is it going to use that detail and focus on where the secondary point is, meaning now their ear is in focus, or is it going to use the D? Yeah, it's got to, right? Because it still can't see the, the yeah. eye. Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> the center point is basically thrown its hands up and said, you got me. Let's see what the outer points can see. And if one of them grabs the ear instead of the eye, if it grabs that ear, it's going to say, okay, we got something. Let's go. But uh, it only cool uses those is, if if it bails out and goes. It only They only come into play right, if it, it asks for help. Them when, yeah, and you will see in your viewfinder or the LCD screen, if you're doing live view, you will see that the point that actually ends up getting highlighted uh, during autofocus, you'll see it shift a little bit. And it's telling you, hey, we're using this one, not that one that's in the center. So okay. you'll you'll know when it happens. Okay, the last three are all zones. I had to re-enable these. I had them disabled on my camera because I never want to land on them. I uh, re-enabled them so that I could pull them up, but we have zone, we have large zone, and then we have large zone horizontal uh, as opposed to vertical. Uh, quick, I think most people understand zone, but but give the quick summary. A couple of quick things. Uh, first off, of course, they can be used for stationary or moving subjects. In zone AF, the system is always, well, almost always, going to try to focus on the nearest subject with detail that it sees within the zones. Okay. The, the zone, not plural, singular. Uh, so, you know, you can try this just sitting at your desk. Uh, just, you know, push the button down halfway and you'll see the points that light up telling you, hey, here's what we're focusing on. Invariably, they'll be the subject closest to what it sees throughout the entire zone. Now, one other thing is that with subject detection, base detection, animal detection, and so on, they will work in zone AF as well. Base detection in particular will work. Eye detection, for whatever technical reasons, will not. Oh. But you can have face detection. You can have face detection active. Use, say, the large large zone horizontal. And, I mean, just bring the camera up to your eye and just press the button and you'll see. It'll just put points around whatever face it detects. It's not going to put a box around it. It'll put live little points lighting up telling you, okay, here's, here's what we're going for. If you didn't want it to do that, if you wanted it to focus on the nearest thing, just turn you know, people detection off. So in zone AF, can you choose a starting point you want it to start with, or it just, it goes on its own? You, 
you can move the zone up, down, left, and right. But once you've done that, it doesn't let you say, okay, I want to put a starting point okay. on the left side, and then I want it to move around. It, it won't let you do that. You can do that in face detect plus tracking, which is the overall AF area. Okay. Makes sense. Next one is subject to detect. And I have mindset to people, but here's what we talked about before. I think this is self-explanatory people, animals, vehicles, or no subject detection. I'm just using a focus point and whatever I put the focus point, do that. A good summary there. Yeah, that's, that's basically it. Um, it's, uh, you know, people, our customers have probably seen this before, but the, uh, people detection is exactly that. Uh, it's designed for face detection. It'll read faces. It'll read heads. In other words, if a face turns, it can still detect that there's a, a head and a body and focus on the head. It'll do body detection, uh, which is nice as well. If you've got a subject that just suddenly we, we run into this and in things like gymnastics where people are doing these weird, you know, vaults and, you know, somersaults and stuff. And momentarily a head may not be visible in a still picture. Uh, the system is smart enough to be able to, instead of just freaking out and trying to focus on the background, it'll say, okay, we still got a person here. We'll focus on the bot. We'll put focus on the body. When we can bring a face back into it, we'll, you know, nail focus there. And eye detect works within that and within animal detection as well. Okay. Uh, specific animals or, I mean, what's, what's the general list? Yeah. Dogs, birds. We, uh, officially, the way the system works is it's set up to, to recognize dogs, cats, and birds. Okay. Now, obviously that can be stretched. You can be in situations where it'll recognize other animals, which clearly don't fall into those categories as an animal. There are going to be some times where it doesn't, you know, you can point it at certain types of animals, uh, you know, even very unusual cats or whatever, uh, or dogs, and maybe it doesn't recognize it as, as an animal that, that can happen. But dogs, cats, and birds officially, and you may be able to get it work to work with other kinds of animals as well. Okay, and then vehicles. Obviously, it's self-explanatory, and and uh, yeah, it isn't. It isn't. Oh, it isn't. It isn't. I don't want to overcomplicate this, but the vehicle detection is designed for cars and motorcycles, specifically in a motor sports environment. So if you think of the types of vehicles you would see in a typical racing environment, that's what these are specifically designed to recognize. Now, they may very well recognize the family car or even a truck or something, but we're not saying, hey, it'll just recognize any vehicle. Uh, it's designed specifically for vehicles in a racing environment that does include dirt bikes because it's cars and motorcycles including dirt bikes. And then there's, uh, for those of you watching on the video, you'll notice on, on periodically on the menus, there'll be an info option. And if you hit that, it lets you go into extra settings. What is spot detection under vehicle? Oh, this is cool. We first saw it in the R3, and then with a firmware upgrade, it was added to the R5 and the R6. If you've got vehicle detection active, and you've got an exposed driver or rider so it's got to be a motorcycle is a perfect example okay. if you activate spot detection if it detects a helmeted head it will put focus on that head and not just the front of the vehicle Ooh. so if you're shooting a race really tight with you know a a, a a 400 a 600 millimeter lens or something 
and you're looking to get vehicles coming around a turn and you want focus on the rider or the driver in an exposed car. Okay. Uh, it'll put focus on the headgear rather than just putting them on whatever the near part of the vehicle is. Okay. So it's, it's a cool thing. Uh, next one is not available to me right now. And I'm guessing that's because the mode that I'm in, but eye detection can be enabled or disabled. I would have to be in face detection yes. up above. So if I go up here and I choose face tracking, then you eye detection can be enabled or disabled. So here's one for you. Up above at the very, very top, so people can see, I've got AF operation is servo AF, which is effectively continuous AF. So how come it says continuous exactly. AF is disabled? I'm glad you asked because continuous AF, one of the things we deal with. Uh, so I'm not the only Canon's one is what you're telling me. <laughs> yeah, you're not the only one by any stretch. Canon's engineers over time have kind of realized the error of some of their initial translations into English presumably for other languages too on the menus uh and this may be one of them and over time they've actually changed some of them so you actually see this has changed on the r3 which is a newer camera continuous af has nothing to do with servo focusing on moving subjects so especially if you come from a competitive system where what we call servo, they may call continuous autofocus, you know, continually follow focusing a right. moving subject. This Canon continuous AF is something totally different. What it means, if you have it enabled, is that anytime the camera is turned on and awake, the autofocus is on and active, even if you haven't pressed the shutter button to kind of wake the autofocus up. The idea in the early days was that this way, with some of the cameras, if a photographer just, you know, I don't know, we're shooting candidates at a wedding reception or something, you set the camera down for a minute, you're talking to somebody, and all of a sudden, you see a great candid picture, you go to pick the camera up. The idea was that the focusing system would already be awake, and you'd get like a half a second or a second edge on getting the focusing system on your subject. Right, okay. uh, it's in today's world with the modern cameras. Yeah, probably not going to find it's really that necessary. So most of the time, I recommend just leaving it turned off because it will drain yeah, your battery a little more. Yeah, okay. Um, so again, continuous AF though on a Canon has nothing to do with servo focusing on moving subjects. Okay. Make sure you clear. Then on we that. have touch and drag settings, which again on on with the touch LCDs that we have, I have it disabled on mine because I don't want I I don't use live view. And so when I put my cheek up, sometimes you have know, that type of thing, but uh, touch and drag AF is disabled, but it lets you touch the screen to choose where your focus point is going to be. What is position method? Well, let me go back first to the, to the first one. I don't want to drag this out too long, but touch and drag AF basically means that looking through the viewfinder, you can move your focusing points by dragging your thumb, again, looking through the viewfinder. Dragging your thumb across the surface of the LCD, even though the LCD is off. So if you want it, even me? though when you're up to the viewfinder, the EVF, your screen turns off. It's still almost like a touchpad. Exactly. The, the LCD screen is not showing you anything. You are looking through the viewfinder. But if you've got a single focusing point, your zone AF or anything else where you can move points around, one of the ways to move them is to have touch and drag AF enabled and then drag your thumb across the surface of the, the LCD screen 
as you look in the viewfinder, and you can do that and actually do it fairly precisely. Uh, it works well for some people. It doesn't work well for other people. Uh, particularly if you're left-eyed, you may have trouble with it. With, if you're right-eyed, just because of the way the camera shifted over a little bit when you look through the camera, you may find it a lot easier to use. But that's what touch and drag AF enabled or disabled is. The positioning method basically means how much do you have to move your thumb across the active surface of the LCD screen to move your points? And will it let you double clutch? In other words, if I want to go all the way from the right to the left with the touch and drag, do I have to do it in one total motion across the whole screen area? Or can I kind of do it partway, stop, and then pick it up and do it partway again? Uh, relative means that you're you're going to be literally having to go one all the way across. Absolute means that you can double clutch. Okay, that makes sense. So then what about active touch area? We have the options for right, left, top, bottom, or top right. When you do the touch and drag AF, how much of that screen LCD screen surface area do you want to be touch active for this? Do you want to be to have to do it across the whole surface of the screen? If you do, whole panel. Do you want to do it over just part of the screen where you're, you don't have to move your thumb as far to drag those points left and right? That's what the other options are for. Okay, makes sense. Uh, so let's jump over to page number two in the AF settings and start at manual focus peak settings. Peak I have on uh, for peaking. Level is high. Color is yellow. Again, this is manual focus settings. So let's run through these. Peaking. Yeah, manual focus peaking, our, our, our video users will certainly know what we're talking about. But if you're coming from a still background, particularly with the digital SLRs, this may still be kind of an unfamiliar term. I apologize. There's construction going on in my building. You can probably hear bang. Yeah, that's fine. And I do apologize if you do. Um, peaking means that as we manually, not autofocus, manually focus the lens, as a subject gets into sharp focus, we not only see it get sharp on the in the viewfinder or on the LCD screen, but we will see literally like a red, yellow, or blue fringe appear around sharp edges of anything we're focusing upon. Uh, that could be a person's eyes, right. I mean, whatever. Any detail, you'll get this colored edge suddenly appear. And it actually can be a pretty nice way of backing up your own visual acuity in terms of just judging blurriness and sharpness, like we've done for years and years with digital SLRs when you're manually focusing. Uh, level. Uh, I normally agree, leave it on high. If you put it on low, it just means that the intensity of that colored fringing is reduced. Sometimes it can get real subtle, so you be the judge. And then the color is just kind of up to you. It isn't just a matter of, you know, oh, you know, such and such is my lucky color. Uh, depending on what you're photographing and even the lighting that you're in, uh, you may find that sometimes a certain color seems to pop pretty decisively where another color may sort of just not really jump out at you as much when it appears in sharp focus. And I will say I'm on high and yellow because I'm colorblind and that stands out to me. Uh, focus guide on or off. I have focus guide on. What's focus guide? Focus guide is another thing for manual focus only. It basically means if you're manually focusing and you want to be able to focus at a particular point, that is a, a small area of whatever the picture area is, and you want you, you want to make sure that at that point, focus is sharp. And you want something other than, once again, just judging blurriness and sharpness as you manually focus. 
Uh, the focus guide gives you a focusing point that you can move around and little arrows at the top of the guide that move back and forth at sort of on sort of a little angle above the little focusing point. When they come together and overlap, they turn green. That's telling you that the system thinks at that point you have achieved sharp focus. If they're off, you can actually tell whether you're front focus or back focus by the direction that they're off in. One of those things that's easier to see than to try yeah. to describe. And I will say it's awesome. I got to say it's awesome. Uh, AS, uh, AF assist beam firing is the little. This would be for your flash when you're using flash for technical reasons. We are much more restricted and limited with mirrorless cameras in general with focus assist beams on speed lights than we were previously. With digital SLRs, we, of course, on the high-end speed lights had those near-infrared striped pattern beams uh, that would, uh, you know, go, would, would illuminate a couple of times and give the system an ability to focus even in total darkness. Uh, for technical reasons, those don't work well with mirrorless since we're focusing off the imaging sensor itself. Uh, right. But given the limited character now of AF Assist, uh, you have the ability now here to tell it, first off, do you even want an AF assist? And if so, uh, do you want to restrict it so that if it's, uh, a, for instance, an LED assist beam, it'll work. Uh, but if you have LED, a focus assist that's with repeating speed light popping, which could be very distracting with live people or whatever, uh, you can have that turned off, for instance. Uh, so, you know, it, it gives you a couple of options in terms of what's available now on the mirrorless cameras. Okay. Uh, page number three of the EOS R5 AF system, but again, applies to uh, most of what we're doing applies to most Canon, or at least conceptually it does. And let's run through the cases. So how do you, I, I described cases earlier as presets. That's kind of how I think of them. Is that, what? how do you describe cases? Because it is unique to You're Canon. absolutely right. Not totally unique. Right Other brands have are. something similar, but yeah. Right. You're absolutely right that they are indeed presets. They were intended as a way to simplify telling the focusing system what, when you're in servo, what type of subject movement you expect. So if all we of this, yeah, I should have mentioned, this is all servo AF. Yeah. And you can see it, it just right above the highlighted number one there on the screen. You can see it says servo AF. You can set it and then go to one shot AF, but it will have no effect. It just, okay. it's ignored. Basically, what if we I was starting to say, if we had a high end sports photographer or wildlife photographer sitting with us, they could certainly tell you that there are lots of different types of subject movement. Not all subject movement is created equal. You have subject movement where subjects kind of zig and zag. You can think of American football where, you know, a running back may be running through the line and cutting and zigging and stuff and, you know, not running at a steady speed. Uh, you got other situations where, uh, even in a football game, but certainly think about a, a photographer photographing the 100-yard dash in the Olympics uh, or auto racing or something where you got a subject that's coming at, a, it could be a pretty fast speed, but just coming steadily right at the camera. That's a different type of movement. And basically, at the highest level, photographers want to be able to fine-tune their autofocus so that they can get the best possible results, frame to frame to frame to frame. That's what the cases are all about. The concept is exactly the same on the mirrorless cameras like the R5 and the R6 as it was back with the digital SLRs. 
Uh, we're basically telling the system, hey, what kind of subject movement do we expect? And then we're tuning the focusing system, the servo AF, to do its best to deal with it. Okay. So case number case one, one says, yeah, go ahead. Let's let's run through these actually. Yeah, case one, in effect, you're telling the system, hey, expect more or less steady, continuous movement. But there is a fair amount of wiggle room in the system so that if it suddenly sees stops and starts or, you know, that kind of thing, it can up to a certain point, it can adjust for those. You haven't optimized it for that, but it's it basically is the way to go if you know that most of the time your movement is going to be steady, whether it's a toddler taking their first steps or whether it's, uh, you know, an Olympic sprinter. Speed okay. isn't the issue here. It's the type of movement that is. And if you hit the rate microphone button, it takes you to the two settings that you see here. Let's start with tracking sensitivity. We're going to get into this when we get into case two and uh, case three. Tracking sensitivity is telling the system, okay, we are servo focusing on a subject. We've started focusing. If there is suddenly an interference, if I'm on that subject with a big telephoto lens and I thought that subject was going to zig a little bit and instead they zagged and all of a sudden I'm looking at the background or if a referee steps in front momentarily or a player on an opposing team, if we're shooting sports or I'll, whatever. I'll give it, I'll, I'll share an example where I run into this shooting live music. I'll have a guitarist whipping their hair up and down and I'm focused on their there face. And when they throw their head forward and that hair flies at me or there are the singer's microphone uh, comes in front of between me and them or their their guitar stock, uh, guitar head stock. Does the camera switch to it? Exactly. That's it. it how, what will the subject do if it sees what will the autofocusing system do? Excuse me. If the system sees a sudden change in what it's trying to focus upon. OK. Basically, will it try to immediately react to that change and refocus on whatever the quote new end quote subject is or will it try to continue to drive the lens at the rate it was before the interference for a perceptible one mississippi or whatever to give you that moment to get back on the real subject okay. your choice uh with the tracking sensitivity but you got a couple of cases that automate the choice as well Right. You can increase its sensitivity to switching faster or decrease it to keep it longer. And then acceleration, deceleration tracking. This is where we're telling the system, okay, are we really expecting steady, continuous movement? Or are we anticipating that we are going to see changes in speed of the subject? Again, think of you got in American football, you got wide receivers, uh, you know, lined up at the end of the line that are going to run like a long fly pattern, which for those who weren't into football just means they're going to run straight down the field, uh, looking to put as much distance between them and a the defender as they can. But they're just coming straight at the camera. Uh, on, on that same team, on the next play, you could have a running back who's handed the ball's handed to him and they're, you know, kind of zigging through the line and they, they're making cuts and they're trying to, you know, sidestep a linebacker and that kind of thing. They're changing speeds. So Excel decel tracking is telling the system, okay, I expect I'm going to get a lot of that continuous movement, 
or I expect I'm going to get a lot of stops and starts. Fine tune the AF to optimize it for one or the other. Okay. That makes sense. So now that we've gone through the versatile one where both of those are set to zero, the rest of the cases are going to make a little bit more sense. Number two, continue to track subjects, meaning if something comes in between you, try tracking the original subject the way they did that, tracking sensitivities exactly. at minus one. Ignore possible you know, obstacles. And then acceleration, yep. deceleration is at zero. Based on your descriptions, case number two makes total sense. Just hang a little bit longer. Right. Case number three, instantly focus on subjects suddenly entering an AF point. So notice the tracking sensitivity here is plus one, but yes. acceleration deceleration is plus one. What role is that playing here going to plus one? Basically, you're telling the system to expect something suddenly appearing at the active focusing point or focusing points and to be on its guard, number one, to jump right on it. When I it got happens, you, got you. And to expect that we may have, since this is suddenly appearing, it may start changing speeds on us. We don't know yet. Perfect example. It's not the only one for sure. Um, if you were shooting uh, Olympic skiing and a photographer was positioned with a telephoto lens looking up the crest of a hill and a skier is expected to come bounding over the hill and, you know, coming right at the camera. But you can't see them until they literally hit the crest of the hill and start coming down. Uh, the idea is that the system can can grab that moving subject uh, as as fast as it can. Gotcha. Uh, when you have the system alert to suddenly focus on a new subject. Okay. Track it faster. And when you see it, get over there and switch to it. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. So here's mine. I normally use case four until the R5. Case four, tracking sensitivity is at zero. This is for subjects that accelerate or decelerate quickly. In other words, don't necessarily, I want you to be sensitive to tracking, but I don't want you to be overly sensitive. If something comes in the way, kind of think about it. I also don't want you to go, something's in the way, I'm not even going to pay attention to it. I kind of want you in the middle, but I do want you to switch to it when you do see it fairly quickly. As much as anything, I think of this setting as something that, for instance, a wildlife photographer might want to use if he or she was working probably with a telephoto lens. Uh, and you, maybe you are just hypothetically, maybe you're around a watering hole uh, in Africa or wherever where, you know, wildlife is going to come and predators may come too, okay. And you may suddenly have a situation where all of a sudden, uh, you know, an animal is kind of suddenly set upon by predators and they are, you know, they're not running just in a straight line. I mean, they're going to be, you know, cutting and zigging and zagging as, you know, whatever the, <laughs> whatever the uh, proposed victim is, is, you know, trying to escape and so on. In other words, is it, they, they could be, you're telling the system expect sudden changes in subject speed. This isn't the hundred yard dash at the Olympics or a hundred meter dash at the Olympics. This is something where you, you got a subject that is likely to be suddenly cutting, zigging, zagging, not so much a change of direction, but change of speed. Okay. Uh, which is what, why it works perfect for me for live music, except yes. now we have auto. Here's the question right. that wraps up cases. Should I still, as a live music photographer, that's not normally shooting a James Taylor sitting on a stool at a microphone, but I'm shooting people that jump in the air in extremely low light scenarios with gear all over and whipping hair, 
is is auto gonna be that good? I mean, should everybody just do auto or should I really lock it in to four or customize my own? Like most forms of auto, the one thing you got to keep in mind is the system does have to take a perceptible, it's not like a whole second or whatever, but it's got to take, you know, a split second to begin to read the subject and decide what is this subject doing? Because it doesn't know. Right. Uh, And then say, okay, this looks like steady movement. We'll go to case one internal. You're not going to see anything change in the menu or whatever. Um, And so on. Oh, so, oh, hold on. So that's really what it's designed. doing. It's switching. Auto is really honestly choosing one through four. It's not adjusting the individual yeah. settings. Yeah, exactly. It's it's basically just saying, okay, we, you know, what should we do here? It's designed to simplify the case selection for most situations with moving subjects. Okay. If you are really, really super critical, shooting really, really tight with super long lenses, you know, 400 200 600 f4s you know coming down the road even the the new 800 and 1200 millimeter lenses you know if you're working really tight and your subjects are really you know you're shooting professional sports or whatever you may still be better off making an intelligent and appropriate selection from one through four okay because you, it doesn't have to take that little you know just half of a one mississippi to say okay is a steady movement or changing speeds or whatever um most of us the auto setting will probably work fine. You'll notice I just set mine back to four. So just so that you know. Uh, okay. So lens electronic manual focus. This is page four of the autofocus settings out of five. Right. This is something much more uh, appropriate with the, with the mirrorless cameras because the RF lenses for our EOS R series, Manual focusing on all of them is done electronically. In other words, you can manually turn a focus ring, but you're not just mechanically turning a helicoid. Uh, What you're doing is you're sending signals to the focusing motor to move the focusing elements in the lens by a certain amount and a certain, you know, at a certain rate. Uh, So this is something that's done with all RF lenses. A few of the EF lenses, and you can adapt those onto the EOS R's with a mount adapter. A few of the EF lenses also use electronic manual focusing. Most did not. Okay. Most of the EF lenses, it was mechanical manual focusing. In other words, you could take the lens off the camera and turn it, and you could see, right. you know, focusing elements moving and stuff. Um, so, that being said, if the lens has electronic manual focusing, basically it's saying, okay, particularly when you're in the one shot autofocus mode where we can focus on something with autofocus, lock it and hold it. After we've held it, keeping the finger on the, on the appropriate activation button, do we want the ability to be able to go in and fine tune the focusing manually? Or is that something we're saying, hey, look, autofocus is fine. I just want that to do the job. I don't even want to run the risk of accidentally hitting the focusing ring as I'm right. simply holding oh, yeah. the lens. So if, you, if you're if you one of the latter, put it on disable after one shot. And then you could, you know, inadvertently hit the focusing ring or whatever, nothing will happen. If you like the idea of being able to fine tune the autofocus after one shot autofocus, when you have it locked, again, you got to have your finger on the button locked, holding it in that locked position. You can set it to the second item, one shot autofocus, you've enabled electronic manual focusing okay the 
enabled with magnify is actually kind of cool in some situations. It lets you get very precise manual focusing either on the LCD screen or in the electronic viewfinder. Because as soon as you start to turn the ring to manually fine tune the focus after you've locked it in one shot, you'll immediately get a magnification uh, of the central area. And it's it's actually a very keen way of being able to tell, did I focus right on the eye, you know, the edge of the eye, or did I, you know, get, you know, the back edge here right. or the tip of the nose or something? So it's actually pretty cool. Um, and just, you know, you, you try it and see what you think uh, is what I would recommend to people. It works in some situations, maybe not the right idea in others. And then disable just simply means, hey, no matter what, if I don't want to be able to inadvertently run the risk of turning the manual focusing ring and having manual focus switch on me, just turn it off. And then you cannot Completely. manual focus until you, unless you go to unless the you side go to of manual the lens focus barrel right. and switch the whole lens to manual focus. And in other words, get totally out of autofocus. Then you could manually focus. Okay, but disable in AF mode means exactly that. Okay, one shot AF release prior. Another thing that carries over from the digital SLRs. Priority. Going back in history with EOS uh, on the digital SLR side, when we used one-shot autofocus, the cameras worked on a focus priority system, meaning that in one shot, if you focused on something, the camera would not let you take the picture. Even if you push down all the way on the shutter button quickly, it would not fire the shutter until the focusing system had confirmed sharp focus and that the focus was locked. Okay. Uh, so the idea was to protect photographers from accidentally taking a picture before the focusing system had kind of done its thing. In recent cameras, certainly the R5 and the R6, among others, we have the ability now with this one-shot release priority to tell the system, hey, when I'm in one shot, do I want it to let me hold off shooting until the actual moment we've achieved sharp focus? Or is my priority on simply getting the shot? And even if it's off by just a smidge in terms of the autofocusing, the moment is more important than the sharpness. I could easily see okay. a photojournalist covering like a news conference in Washington or something, you know, might be in one shot focusing on what's essentially a stationary subject at a podium. But he or she might say, hey, look, if, uh, you know, the, that, that person at the podium makes a, a, a good gesture or something, I want to get that gesture. And if, it, if the face isn't just tack, 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 sharp, hey, this is for newspaper anyway. It probably doesn't matter. So the photographer gets the choice. Okay. That makes that makes total sense, actually. Uh, switching tracked subjects. I have it set to one, which is the default. Mm -hmm. Let's understand real quick in the modern world, when we say focus tracking, this is industry-wide, not just can. It used to be. Back when I was a lad and autofocus cameras were first getting started, we often used the word tracking, meaning what Canon now calls servo autofocus. If we were just put a focusing point on that Olympic sprinter running at the camera from behind the finish line and we're just shooting straight down the track, okay, and we just, you know, you know, bang, 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 continuous servo autofocus, we used to call that tracking, focus tracking. Nowadays, in the modern world, this isn't just Canon, this is across the industry, when the industry says focus tracking, that's not what we mean anymore. Focus tracking means that we can start with a subject and a focusing point on that subject in one part of the picture area. It could be in the middle, could be off to one side, up, down, whatever. 
And then once we start shooting or focusing, if that subject starts to move to a different part of the frame, we don't have to keep a focusing point on that subject like I did with most of my digital SLRs, okay? We can give that compositional freedom and have the autofocusing system simply change focusing point locations uh, as long as it's somewhere within the active AF area. Zone AF uh, or whatever, yeah. Right. That's what focus tracking means. Now, how that relates to this. If we are on a subject, let's say we got, you know, a, a, an athlete or something, and uh, or it could be an animal. Let's, let's say that. If we got a couple of animals and they're moving and we've got animal A and we decide, hey, for compositional reasons, I would love to start with animal A on the far right side of my picture. And so you've got animal A lined up and he or she or it starts to, you know, kind of move around the frame. But other animals begin to come into the picture area. How readily will the system give up on animal A and go to animal B or C if they are detected? Uh, how readily will it switch? from an initial subject to another subject. And it's up to you whether you want the system to pretty much do everything in its power to hold the original subject, which would be initial priority, or if you're saying, hey, given the dynamics of what go what's going on, I'm actually okay if it switches to the next subject, the next bird that's flying in this pattern or whatever, uh, this you know group of birds that are flocking around. You can determine which you want. Whether you want the system to be able to fluidly switch as it detects a new subject coming into the picture area or whether it kind of stays with that original one. I could almost see this being part of the cases because I'm wondering now if in my case with live music or you know somebody shooting sports, putting it on initial priority might be great when you know the singer walks in front of the guitarist for a second, but I was focusing on the guitarist. This this kind of relates Perfect example. to you know to the case settings. So that's interesting. I never thought about combining this with the case settings. That's interesting. Okay. Lens drive when AF impossible. All of us, I'm sure, especially if you've worked with a macro lens or a telephoto lens, have run into a situation where you either just pick the camera up from scratch and maybe the last shot you took was at the, cam at the lens's minimum focusing distance. You shot a macro type shot, close-up shot in a botanical garden or something like that. And now you're looking to photograph a bird that's, you know, 50 feet away from you or something like that. You pick the camera up and as you initially go to focus, it is so hopelessly out of focus initially that the AF system may not even really know what to do. And instead, it's immediately zipping on your subject. It just kind of it just kind of sits there and does nothing. Hunting. Uh, exactly. Uh, it'll often just start to kind of hunt back and forth. Basically, you're telling the system here in those situations where you've got what we call defocus, the lens is so far out of focus that the AF system is left scratching its head. Do you want the system to try to drive the lens and hunt back and forth? Or do you want to just tell the system, look, I don't want to waste the time. I will use that full time manual focus and quickly manually move the lens in the right direction and then let the autofocus pick back up again. Okay. So your choice. This one is self-explanatory and it's as you switch between the focusing modes that we went through earlier, do you want every single one of them available to you? And I personally uncheck the three zone ones, but obviously that's going to be kind of a personal choice. Uh, exactly. That's AF method selection control. Uh, I have mine set up to the multifunction button, 
but you have this or the main dial. I think now the main dial is the default, if I'm not mistaken. And that messed me up. Any Anything that's not self-explanatory here? No, this is just basically as you cycle, through, if you're using the buttons to pick your AF method, again, single point, expansion point, zone AF, any of those. Um, basically, this is one of those areas where you can, you got several different places you can do it. You can do it on the menu screen and never touch a button. Uh, or you can do it with buttons on the camera body, whichever you find quicker and easier to do. If you're using the buttons, this just simply defines, okay, push what and then turn what. Uh, so the default method is on most of the cameras, push the AF point select button and then press the multi-function button, which is that little tiny button. Yeah, up and, by it, the shutter button. and it looks like this. If I hit the 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 selection button and then I hit the multi-function button, it cycles through them and you can actually see on screen. You know, let me put that in the middle so that people can see it. Uh, as I hit multi-function, it actually cycles through the different options. I have zones turned off now, obviously, but you get the idea. Yeah. And the choice is just simply, do you want to do it by pressing that multi-function button or would you rather turn the main dial, which is that dial that protrudes up on a Canon camera <laughs> at the front of the camera, uh, just near the shutter button. Gotcha. So that's all that is. Okay. Orientation linked AF. And this is basically when you choose a specific focus point, if you rotate the camera vertical, like you got a battery grip on or whatever, if you go from landscape orientation to portrait orientation, do you want to be able to choose the starting focus point independent in those orientations, right? Uh, yeah, basically, it's just it's saying uh, if you move, especially if you move a focusing point off center manually, do you want to keep it at exactly the same location, no matter whether you are shooting horizontal or vertical? Or when you switch to vertical, do you want the focusing point to move and be in another place for your verticals than it is for your horizontals? So I actually find this a cool feature. It's, uh, it's not unique to Canon. You know, a number of other cameras nowadays have it. Uh, but it can really speed things up if you switch quickly from horizontal to vertical in the type of shooting you do, whether it's wildlife or portraits or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Like for me, photographing live music, quite often I will have a particular focus point and I might have that slightly off center. When I rotate the camera, it will automatically notice oh, it went out of it. Notice now I'm in portrait mode. And I'm going to put this, I'm going to leave it in the bottom right corner there, which is technically upper right corner. And then when I rotate the camera, it's moving just from rotating the camera. It's actually a really, really handy tool for me. I use it often because I'll be shooting land, landscape orientation with a guitarist, but you know the name of the band and the drummer on the left, and then I'll rotate vertical. And I want it to start at the top immediately to get the singer's face, you know, something like, like that. Exactly. All right. that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good example. Page number five, the last commands, then we'll get into the listener questions. Yes, this is a long episode. I did warn you at the beginning, it was going to be a long episode, people. Uh, initial servo AF point for face and autofocus. So this one, there's three options. Explain these three options. This is yet another one where the wording is, uh, as my friends from uh, the United Kingdom would say, a little wonky. Basically, what we're talking about is if we have the AF method set, the AF area set for face detect plus tracking. In other words, we're using the maximum available real estate in the picture 
to be able to have focusing take place in. We're not using just a single point or whatever. Uh, if we're set there and we want to now track a subject, okay, do we want the camera to decide when I push the shutter button down halfway or activate my back button autofocus and initially push it in? Do you want the camera to decide what to focus upon, which usually means the auto setting? Or do you want to define a point yourself and you want to say, hey, start here. Start on the left-hand side because in this composition, I want to start with this on the left-hand side. Maybe from there, we'll you know now track that subject across the frame, but I want to start here. Uh, that can actually be a very effective way of working with a modern camera. Especially if now, there's five faces and you want it to start towards the left. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, that's, you know, one instance, you know, it could be a, there could be a million bicycle racing, auto racing, right. you know, whatever, a whole bunch of different things. Okay. Initial point set for face detect plus tracking means that if you've chosen that option and then you get out of the menu, you're going to see that you've got the little corners indicating that the whole picture area or much of the picture area is available. It's face detect plus tracking. But you're also going to see a focusing point, a box that you can now move side to side, up and down, whatever, throughout the available AF area and tell the system, hey, here's where I want you to start. And you are setting that point in face detect plus tracking. The second option, and this is the one that confuses the hell out of people, and I'll admit it confused the hell out of me for a while, is if I was using a single focusing point. Uh, Steve, your example of the, that you normally use, AF point expansion, and you may move that point manually up, down, left, right, depending on just the, the situation. Right. But let's say you were using that, that AF point expansion, and then you decided, hey, I want to switch to face detect plus tracking here. I want to be able to track a subject across the whole picture area. Okay. As soon as you said face detect plus tracking, the system initially is going to put that box the last place you had it with your AF point expansion. Whatever, wherever it last was before you went into face detect plus tracking, that's where it's going to start. Okay. Now you are totally free to use the multi-controller on the back of the camera to move it up, down, left, right. So it doesn't have to be there, but that's where it's going to start. Gotcha. And then auto is self-explanatory. It chooses where to start. Okay. Yeah, it'll nor it'll just pick what it thinks is the most appropriate starting point. So focusing ring rotation. Yeah, this is another cool thing that happens with electronic manual focusing. Uh, anybody who's been around cameras for a long time, I got my start in photography, among other things, working in photo retail. So I, you know, had to handle lots of different cameras. Uh, you probably know that Nikon, Pentax, and probably one or two others that I'm not thinking of, they manually focus the opposite of the way Canon and some other brands do. In other words, you, you turn the lens, you right. know, counterclockwise, you're going in one direction with those cameras and going in the opposite direction with another. So if you're used, if you're coming to, to Canon from a different brand and you're used to your manual focusing being opposite of the way Canon's is, you can actually change that now in the menu. Okay. And then sensitivity is somewhat self-explanatory and that is, is it tied, let me jump in there, is it tied directly to how fast you turn that manual ring or 
if you turn the ring faster, does it move faster? And the way I always explain this to people is it's it's like scrolling on a mouse nowadays, right? If you drag, it goes slow. If you flick fast, it'll jump faster. So that's a good analogy. That's yeah. a good analogy. And, uh, you know, I'd say to everybody, try it and try it with, if you own more than one lens, try it with a couple different lenses and just see what you prefer. Yeah. You may find that with some lenses that one or the other almost makes you crazy. Whereas the opposite one just seems like, Oh, okay, this works. And that may not be the same for every lens you own. So just try it. If you do a lot of manual focusing and just get familiar with what your gear does. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Okay, this one, sensitivity AF point select, it's currently set to zero. Right. The key thing here is that little sunburst icon right at the beginning, which actually, if you look very close, I know it's hard to see with old eyes like mine. It's actually a set of little arrows, not just sunburst lines. Uh, and what it indicates is the eight-way multi-controller on the back of the camera, the little what some people euphemistically call a joystick on the back of the camera that we call an eight-way multi-controller. On the R5 and the R6, they really raised the game in, in a design sense in terms of how quickly you can use that multi-controller to move a focusing point or a focusing area like the Zone AF or whatever across the screen, up and down, and so on. Reposition a focusing point manually. It's actually so brisk that they added this menu setting to let you adjust how fast as you just jog it, you know, one way or the other, up, down, left, right, how fast are those points going to move? Right, right. So that's what we mean when we say multi-controller sensitivity. Okay. Uh, do you want it to really zip or do you want to have like a little finer control as you just sort of sit there and nudge it? Okay. So that kind of sums up the, the, you know, sensitivity one. What about electronic full-time manual focus? The last command, page number five. This can be a little confusing because back on screen number four, we already had something for electronic manual focusing in one shot. Think of this one. There you go. Lens electronic AMF. Uh, now we're on screen number five and we've got another one about full-time manual focusing. Think of this one as basically just an overall master setting saying, okay, do I want full-time manual focusing capability if the lens has electronic manual focusing? Again, any RF right. lens, some adapted EF lenses, but not most of them. Okay. Uh, this basically just says, do I want to be able to do it with the electronic manual focusing? Yes or no. Okay. Um, that, that's It's a little surprising that they split them up, but they did. That's pretty self-explanatory. Now, in a second, I'm going to show people the the setup that I use. I, I kind of got it from David Bergman, and then he was doing it a little differently, and I made a suggestion to him, what, what if we did this? He did a whole thing on his Ask David Bergman for Adorama TV. You can go watch his full video on it because he's got fantastic demos in it. But uh, I'll show you how I set up my dual back button focus here in just a second. But I want to run through some listener questions. And some of these will be fairly quick because we've answered them. But uh, first of all, on Instagram, AK, uh, AK Chang, uh, just known as AK, A-K-A-Y. Question is, best AF settings for low light concerts, AF speed tracking, etc. So what would you do shooting a concert? I'm guessing you'd do case four. Um, I'm guessing you would also do that, you know, switch subject 
adjustment that we found later on in the menus? What what, what would you say is best for low light and concerts? Well, I, I fall back on something I said at the beginning of our discussion or early in our discussion when I said that, you know, one of the things you want to do is not get too deep in overthinking things at the beginning. If I realize that sometimes whether you're a working professional or just an enthusiast, you have situations and opportunities that come up where it's like, oh my God, I'm going to get the, I'm just making this up. You know, I, I get to photograph the Rolling Stones. Oh my God, I got to get this right. And then there's other situations where it's just like, you know, hey, me and my, me and my buds are going to go and, you know, watch a couple of bands and shoot some pictures and stuff, uh, you know, at the local college auditorium or whatever it might be. Um, so in, in the beginning, I would say my main concerns are going to be what focusing area do I think I need? AF method in the case of the R5 and the R6. And again, they've changed on the R3, they changed the wording to AF area, okay. which makes a lot more sense. It means the same thing. Anyway, do I, you know, do I want to work with a single point? Do I want to work with expanded points uh, like you do, uh, you know, or whatever? Get that underway first. And then ask yourself, okay, in terms of the type of subject movement, if any, that we're going to be experiencing, what's the nature of it? Is this something where stylistically, you know, you, you made a great example. It's stylistically, some musicians are, you know, they're constantly moving things up and down and, you know, grabbing the mic and, you know, doing all kinds of other things. And others, you know, maybe it isn't, you know, quite like James Taylor sitting in a chair, but uh, others, you know, not quite so much. Um, you know, it, it's whether you shoot music or any other moving subjects, wildlife or anything else, in the beginning, it's hard to go wrong with case one. Okay. I'm not saying it's perfect for everything. It's not optimum for everything. My, as you're getting used to a new camera system in the Canon line, my recommendation is if you're in servo, start with case one and see what happens. Okay. See what your hit rate is. If you start seeing that, you know, oh my God, every time this guy reaches for the mic and starts moving it, it's focusing on his hand or something or her hand, you know, then, okay, now you got to, you know, kind of make a decision. All right. Do I, do I want to have the system sustain an interference, uh, you know, with like case two, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, I, I try to tell people, at least as you're getting warmed up with this, start with case one evaluate what happens. It's never going to be perfect. So don't wig out if you shoot a thousand right, pictures and two right. of them are out of focus or something. But if you're seeing a trend, that's when with the servo adjustments, case one, two, three, four, and auto, you may want to consider, you know, dipping in and trying something different. Okay. Stephen Burkich on Twitter. And Stephen, I've known Stephen for a long time and I, I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his last name right now that I think about it. Uh, says, I've always been bewildered by all the cases and what those settings actually do. We've kind of answered that today, but always trying to find the optimal settings for moving animals, either on the ground or in the air. And I'm guessing because of the way moving animals move, yeah, you could start with one, but I'm actually thinking four would be a good starting point or auto. It may be for a lot of things. Okay. Um, part of it just depends on what cameras you're using too. The R5 and the R6. I'm not here to just do a, you know, a, uh, an infomercial, but they truly change the whole dynamic of using autofocus to focus on moving subjects with Agreed. their ability to do subject detection uh, as well as subject tracking. And again, we said tracking is following a subject around the frame, not just to and from the camera. 
Right. So let you know so, it's, it's you horizontal know, it, it, as opposed to to uh, the Z axis. Horizontal, exactly. Horizontal and vertical as opposed to just simply right back and forth. Okay. Which which, you know, which case is best? Which more- case is best for? Is there a case that's best for left, right, up, down versus you know like somebody that's jumping versus somebody that's running at or away from you? It really comes down to again just how is the are you or the camera going to be able to keep a focusing point on that subject and then what is their movement going to be okay makes sense what is the character of their movement uh, because again to, to somebody who just got their first camera you know and they're on the sidelines at a pop warner football game with their you know eight-year-old kid uh playing their idea of a moving subject and a professional wildlife photographer's idea of a moving subject are probably going to be two very two different, totally things. different things, and not yeah. just because one shooting sports and one shooting wildlife. Alchemist Tim on Twitter says, and this is a sarcastic question, so take it for what it is. My question would be, where in the menu can I set metering to the selected focus point? He's talking about spot metering. This is my biggest complaint about Canon. I'm sorry that you're here to hear this, but you know, on a 1DX Mark III, not even on an R3, but on a 1DX Mark III, if I'm in single focus point or something similar to a single, like an expansion, and I'm in spot metering, and I move my focus point up and to the right, I'm still metering from the middle on anything but the 1DX. And that's always driven me nuts because right. it's just software. It's The software's written, and in my particular case, if I want... Spot metering is perfect for a concert where I have a black stage and a spotlight on somebody's face and I'll put a focus point on their face composed, which is what photography is all about is composition, but I'm metering on, and their face is lit up by a spotlight, but I'm metering on the black part of the stage. It's, it's always driven me nuts, but I, I had that conversation on a show actually with Drew one day and he, or he sent me an email and I answered it for somebody. It's, it, they're, it's not as big of a deal now. And the truth is with an EVF, I don't watch my meter nearly as often as I used to. So let's, let's move on to a Mikey. But in, in fairness, just real quickly, we okay. have definitely passed that sentiment along over the years to our product planners and designers in Japan. And I'll be happy to repeat it one more time. Yeah, uh, please do. Because I, I you see my, 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 my concert example is perfect. And that is if I've perfect. got a singer lit up and I move my f- focus point to him, I need to meter his lit up face, his or her lit up face, but I'm not, I'm, I might be metering literally a pure black area of the stage and my meter's wrong. And in photography, that, that compositional tool is very, very handy. Uh, Mikey shot 84 on Instagram says, thank you for this interview. I'd love to know the best method for tracking a football player during a game What's the best setting for AF to ignore other players moving into the shot and just be sticky on the initial subject? Thank you. And I think we kind of answered that when we talked about the, the custom settings. Um, one, of the, the, one of the ones to look for in the AF menu is that switching tracked subjects. Okay. And you want to make sure it's not going to eliminate it, but you want to make sure that that's set to that initial zero setting where you're telling the system, hey, I'm on an initial subject. Do your darndest to stick with it. Okay. And it, it can still get thrown off when you're shooting things like American football and so on, where there's just sometimes lots of subjects similarly dressed and so on in the scene. But that would be 
the place to start. I got a couple of uh, well-known people that ask questions too. My buddy, Jeff Harmon on Twitter, it's Harmon underscore Jeff. He hosts the Photo Taco podcast and also the uh, Master Photography podcast. His question, I think, is exactly what we just answered on the last one, and that is best settings for tracking basketball players. I've tried a lot of different case types and technique, but I'm not convinced I have the best one yet. And I think, Jeff, based on what we just said on the last question, that kind of answers that one. And the la uh, two more questions, I think, is what it is. This one is Britt Bowman uh, on Instagram, Britt underscore Bowman, B-R-I-T-T. Britt is an amazing tour photographer for Genesis, for Volbeat, and other bands. And when she saw the request for questions, she said, oh, this is one I need to hear. I mostly just want to hear what he has to say to see if maybe I have a setting wrong or something. I think my main question has nothing to do with autofocus, sadly. I'm trying to get crowd shots from the stage on my R5, and it's like they don't show up. But the exact same settings on my 5D, I see people. So in other words, I think what she's saying is she's got identical exposure settings on a 5D4 and an R5. And those exposure settings on a 5D4, she sees people. I'm assuming that's because it's optical through the lens. But on the, but on the R5, she doesn't see any people. And I'm wondering if it's because the EVF isn't, in simulation, not seeing it, but I don't know. Do you have any ideas? I, the way I, I the, thank you so much. First off for sending the question in the way the question is worded. I'm not sure if what you're talking about is what you're seeing in the viewfinder versus what you're, unless I missed something. Oh, on the uh, picture. Versus yeah. what you're seeing in a finished image. Uh, because obviously if you're in manual mode, it doesn't have to be manual, but if you're, you know, shooting the same area, at the same exposure setting, right. you know, you could be an aperture priority or whatever. It doesn't matter. I mean, they should be essentially very similar exposures. Again, presuming, you know, lighting hasn't changed all that good stuff. I'm, I think your point uh, is a good one uh, about that. If what we're talking about is what you're seeing in the viewfinder, that can be very much influenced by whether you have exposure simulation on or off. And in addition, we don't have this on the R5 and the R6, but we did introduce it on the R3. Now, again, I, I understand this this person may not be using an R3, and many of your users, many of your viewers may not be either. But one of the things we introduced on the R3 is a new feature called optical viewfinder simulation. One of the problems that a lot of folks coming over from SLRs have said that they've experienced with any electronic viewfinder on a mirrorless camera, not just a Canon, but you know, anything is that sometimes in a high contrast situation, that could be bright sun outside at high noon, it could be under theater uh, you know, or stage type lighting or whatever, where you have you know, harsh spotlighting, but then a lot of stuff going very, very dark, is that oftentimes the electronic viewfinder basically lets the bright stuff wash out and the dark stuff just suddenly goes pure black. And you, you're sitting there trying to see, and it just, you know, the viewfinder is kind of fighting you a little bit. We don't have this on the, R, on the R5 and the R6, but on the R3, we introduced a new feature, just so you know, called this optical viewfinder simulation, which literally engages a high depth, not a high dynamic range image in the viewfinder. Ooh. It doesn't change your picture, but it takes, it takes away exposure simulation and instead gives you an automated high dynamic range image where suddenly most Human eyes can see more detail in the bright stuff and the dark stuff. 
I'm not saying go out and buy an R3. All I'm saying is just be aware that if what you're talking about is indeed a viewfinder thing, we're aware of See, it. See, and that's, that's actually similar to one of the issues. The only issue I have with the EVF is in exposure si- simulation, it's wonderful. I can see everything and it's it tends to be accurate, but I have had occasions, and I think it's because I have EVS, EVF brightness on auto. I have had situations where the scene gets so dark that suddenly the viewfinder decides on its own, even though it's in exposure simulation mode, to brighten, at which point I think that's the exposure. And it's not, at which point you got to go in and set your EVF to a fixed exposure. Last question from a listener, Marty Sprague on Instagram. It's marty.sprague. When using an R5 to capture small birds and branches, the autofocus system doesn't work well. It locks on a branch and it's difficult to find the bird even with eye detect. I have to focus on something else and then try again. Usually by that time, the bird is gone. Any autofocus tips, thanks in advance, Marty. And I'm going to guess this one. Go to that first single point that's super small and super detailed. Is that his best bet? Uh, keep in mind, if you do that, you're you're manually telling the system, hey, here's exactly where I want you to focus. And you know we'll put it right over the eye and all that. But you no longer talk talking eye detection. Right. Because this, as soon as you go to a single focusing point or whatever, eye detection is basically ignored. It's but, out of But the, the eye detection isn't working for him, though, because of all the branches. That's, so that certainly is an alternative right there. Right? So I, okay. I, I'd be the last person in the world to pour cold water on what you just said. You know, just, you know, sometimes, you know, a football team, you know, is facing fourth down and, you know, 20 yards or something. You got to punt the ball away. Sometimes you just got to, you got to punt it away and wait for the next time you get the ball. Okay. Um, photographically, we sometimes have to do that too. In terms of though, using the technology, one thing that may be helpful on the R5 and the R6 is that initial point for focus tracking that we talked about in the AF menu. And you had the three choices there, the auto, and then the two others where you can tell the system, okay, Here's what I want you to focus on. Even though we're in face detect plus tracking. Start here. Wide area capability and subject detection can be active. Birds or, you know, animals or whatever. That can give you a leg up in terms of telling the system, hey, look, try to ignore those branches and get that, you know, little bugger that's, you know, on the branch there in the lower third of the frame. That, you know, another good part is he may be in the default people changing that to animal. Would also, that, yeah, pro- that'll mess you up. Probably help too. That'll mess you up. Um, I know Rudy's got a meeting to get to, and I've got a few more things I want to go through really quick. Can you hang out for just another sec? Sure. Okay. Sure. This is fun. I, I'm, I'm happy to. I know. I'm the same way. I love this. People are going to go, Steve, you released an almost two hour episode. Sorry, but it just is what it is. Uh, so let me jump to here. I promise I would show people how I set up my autofocus. Uh, and this is absolutely key. I customize my buttons. Now, This is where the David Bergman video really comes in handy because in the Bergman video, he shows you these settings, but he also takes it out in the field and lets you see through his, through his camera as he's focusing on things. And and in this scenario, I'm not going to go through that. I, I highly recommend that video. Maybe I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but here's what I do for my particular setup. I go to the custom functions menu, which is the sixth tab. I go to customize buttons, which is on page number three of the custom functions button. First thing is the shutter button. I have it on metering start. It starts 
where you are actually on metering and autofocus, I disable autofocus from my shutter button and I am in metering start only on that. Then I go down to the rear AF on button. And the rear AF on button, I customize to do my metering and my autofocus. So basically that becomes my shutter button except for actually triggering the shutter, okay? But here's the key. When you are in here, most people miss that it says info detail set. I go in here and everything is just a line, meaning don't change anything when I do this, okay? That'll come into play here in, in just a second, trust me. So then I go down to the next button, which is the asterisk button. And I go into asterisk, and that one I have on metering and AF start exactly like the AF on button. Why would I have two buttons do the exact same thing? And that's where this little info button detail set comes in. When you go in there, you can say, when I hit the AF on button, don't change anything. And I want you to do, uh, you know, autofocus and metering. When I hit the asterisk button, I want you to do autofocus and metering. And regardless of what mode I was in, I want you to switch to the servo mode. So I can come into AF operation and change it. Don't change anything. Leave it what the camera's at. That's what my AF on button is. Or one shot or servo. I'm in servo. And anytime I hit the asterisk button, you can have it change to whatever autofocus zone setting you want. In my particular case, I'm in a point selection, point expansion, the nine point expansion when I'm using AF on, anytime I hit the asterisk button, it auto switches to face detection. Why do I use this? I'll tell you why I use this. When I do trade shots backstage with an artist and a venue general manager, my camera was already set up to use point expansion servo for the show. All I got to do is hit the asterisk button and I get face detection. It's just, it's, oh, it's just so fun. Uh, and then you can also change the servo characteristics and pick your case. So you can say, when I hit the asterisk button, I want you to use the auto case or case one or case four, or don't change it, face detection and servo. And that, my friends, is basically my, my autofocus setup, which brings me to the speed round with you, Rudy. What is your, as a photographer, what is your favorite composition rule? I mean, it, it, for me, stuff that lights me up is when I can, I like putting things off center. And I mentioned, before, you know, at the beginning of our discussion, I love, not exclusively, but I love the opportunities that an ultra wide angle lens presents. And it gives you just a lot more space that you're working with. Okay. Within that space, if there is a discernible, obvious subject, there are a lot of times I'm inclined to move it like way off center, not the rule of thirds, but I mean, like, I don't mind sometimes putting things in a corner if there's not a lot of other competing stuff in the frame visually that makes it hard to identify, hey, what was I trying to take a picture of in the first place? Um, don't be afraid to put things way off center is maybe a quick and easy one that works for me. Everybody's okay. eyeballs and sensitivities are different, so I'm not saying that's the right answer for everyone. Okay. Now, I'm a music photographer. have to ask, your favorite album of all time or favorite artist? Oh, boy. You know, you, you keep in mind, this is weird as this sounds. You're talking to the one kid <laughs> that when I graduated from high school, I didn't, I, I was probably the only kid in my graduating class that did not own a record album. Um, 
So it's hard for me to pick any one, any one uh, album or group. But um, I love I love all British Invasion stuff. Okay. So uh, early early Beatles, that kind of stuff works for me. Early Stones, oh, I love that stuff. Um, and uh, you know, it, it extends to other oldies, you know, Motown and that kind of thing. Uh, that's the stuff that lights me up. And I realize that, uh, that's not what the David Bergman's of the world are photographing. Uh, I'm, I'm way behind in their wake, so to speak. <laughs> Favorite drink. Uh, I'm going to keep it tame in a G rated thing here. Uh, iced coffee, iced coffee. Okay. And last question. Is there, if you were to recommend one photographer that people should follow, who would it be? Oh my God. Somebody that oh people may God. not know about or may know about that, but more people need to pay attention to. All right. I'm going to go out on a, a bit of a limb here and I hope that this doesn't rub any of your viewers and listeners the wrong way. Never. I mentioned that I've lately gotten into shooting models and fashion type photography mm -hmm. and that kind of thing. It's not exclusively what I do or it's not my total background or whatever, but I've gotten into it lately and I very much enjoy it. A photographer whose work I think is just sensational is a guy in Florida, used to be a Sports Illustrated staff photographer, so he kind of reinvented himself. A guy named Anthony Nesty, N-E-S-T-E. -E. Okay. Anthony does a lot of what could be described as kind of sexy fashion. So I understand his the way he works, and he does include some nudes and stuff too, but that's not, he's not exclusively, you know, doing that. Uh, the way he works may not be everybody's cup of tea. So I'm not, you know, I understand if you're, right. you know, just, if you don't like that kind of stuff, just, you know, follow somebody else. Uh, Anthony Nesty, uh, really though, to me, makes magic out of the subject matter that he works with. Anybody can take a pretty person, a model, and right. take a decent picture of them. Uh, Anthony goes way beyond. Okay. So his is one name that would pop to mind. So if people want to know more about Canon, the Canon website, usa.canon.com. Uh, all the socials, I believe, are right. at Canon USA on every social, right? Twitter, Instagram, everything? Yeah. 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 We have, we're active on Instagram as Canon USA. We're active on Instagram and Facebook and, and so on. And uh, usually if you just punch Canon USA into the search field, it'll bring you right to us. So again, Rudy, this has just been wonderful. Technical advisor, product planning department for Canon USA. Dude, this, seriously, I've wanted, you know, because we've talked, wanted to do this for so long. I can't say thank you enough. I really appreciate it. Oh, this is, I love doing this stuff. This is the fun part of my job. So uh uh, coming right back at you when I say thank you for the opportunity. Uh, thank you to all the listeners and certainly hope that, uh, you know, those folks that sent questions in and so on, uh, certainly hope that we gave you some insights into using the system and keep in mind, it's not just an R5 or an R6 thing. Even if you use a different brand, you'll see similar stuff, maybe worded very differently, but you'll see similar kinds of controls in your menus too. Yeah. And like I said, sometimes it'll be more or less granular or, you know, wording differently, there's usually some kind of an equivalent there. And more importantly, if you understand the concepts that we're talking about, 
that in and of itself can help a lot. All the show notes for today, all the links for today, I'll put David Bergman's video in there too, uh, are at behindtheshot.tv. So make sure you head over there. Of course, if you're on YouTube, please head down, hit the like button. Please do subscribe. Please tell your friends about the show. And in fact, wherever you get your podcast, like Apple Podcasts, where you can get it in audio or video or Spotify or whatever, if you take a moment and just drop a both a star rating and maybe a nice written comment, it would be much appreciated. Of course, if that is something that you liked in the show today. Uh, please be sure to join us next, next time as we take a look inside the mind of a great photographer by taking a closer look behind one of their shots. I'm Steve Brazel, and we'll see you on the next show. Thank you.